Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com. Hello and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby, and I am joined today by Sondra Davis. Sondra is a highly respected financial planner, educator, and coach who has dedicated her career to helping people achieve financial stability and prosperity. She has a master's degree in financial planning. She's an accredited personal finance coach, an international coach federation master certified coach, a certified mindfulness teacher, and an executive coach. Uh, When she's not busy getting tons of certifications, she's a professor at Golden Gate University, a Navy veteran who has trained more than 2,500 individuals to develop financially healthy habits and achieve their goals. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It is such a blast to see you. Well, you say that, but I had to turn on the I had to turn on the recording because you were roasting me for being old. So roasting is a strong word though, but roasting is a strong word because what I was doing, what I was actually doing, let me say this, let me clarify my position to the people. What I was actually doing was recognizing and maybe even reconciling when I first met you and what you said you were like all of 33. I, I actually think I thought you were younger even then mm-hmm. um, when we were at Texas Tech at one of the first FTA meetings. I mean, yeah. you know, it was I mean, one of the first conferences. And I remember you saying you saw me talking about it on LinkedIn and you learned about it and then you came. You know, and it was like, oh, okay. So before influencers were a thing, I put something on it. <laughs> I put something on LinkedIn. You said, hey, what is this thing? And you came down. And I just remember the rigor of your thinking, right? I remember how you were determined to understand what this new thing, financial therapy, was about. Um, and I also remember you were really, really young. And so when I look at you now and I see all this gray, I'm like, I feel like a, a, a a professional auntie. Now I feel like a long lost auntie. I haven't seen you in ten, in person in 10 years. And of course I follow you on LinkedIn and all the places, right? But I don't know that I've seen you. And so you're you're a full grown man. <laughs> I am a grown man with a lot of gray hair. Um, you yes. I'm, yes. Hoping it, I'm hoping it makes me distinguished. I don't know if the the poofy unwashed look that I have going on today is very distinguished, but we're going to hope the grays move me in that direction. I have to say, I love the haircut. The gray makes you absolutely distinguished. You know, I remember when I first came into this profession, I was 44 mm-hmm. and I was already more than 50% gray at in my 40s, in my early 40s. And I remember being at Golden Gate. I did my master's in financial planning there. I remember all of the students who were there with me, I mean, the classes were all packed, right? And we were in person back then. And I remember all of the my colleagues who were in classes with me together, they were talking about how they were having so much trouble being taken seriously in the field because they had no gray, right? And of course, it wasn't my problem. I was already gray. But, you know, there there is something to be said for the appearance of wisdom, which, you know, that gray brings. So it doesn't look like there's gray in your hair, but the beard certainly uh, lets people know you, you've you been around for a minute. <laughs> yeah, I was 27 when I got my PhD. And I remember, yeah. I remember, you know, really uh, just feeling young. And I don't know who wouldn't want to take life advice from a 27 year old, you know, as a psychologist, who doesn't. <laughs> He doesn't want to take life advice from a 20-something-year-old, but right, great right. to see you. So Dude. you made a huge impression on me. It's to the point that even though we haven't seen each other in years, I wanted to start off with the impression that you made on me. I, I ran this by you at the beginning because when I think about you and your personality, you have this hard-to-find mix, right? So on the on the one hand, Like you are what comes up in the dictionary when you look up, you know, kind, inclusive, warm, welcoming. 
you know, your warm invitation to have me join the Financial Therapy Association conference was was what got me there. But I also get this, the the particular sense from you that you are uh, assertive and strong and that you speak your mind and and that you take no, uh, this is a family show, but that you take no crap, right? Um, and so when I was thinking about you and thinking about that unique mix of skills and thinking about our conversation, I thought that's really the perfect mix of skills for a financial professional to have, right? Because you're you're so warm and welcoming, but you're so candid. How did you achieve this balance? And, and do you find it to be a useful pairing of skills in your work? Well, first, I just want to say thank you. I'm not sure if you hear the term about feeling seen, but your statement, even when I read it, and I do appreciate you sent the questions. I don't do a lot of preparation for podcasts as I like for them to be organic, uh, but I did read the questions. And this one was extremely provocative for me because what you're seeing is my authentic self. And you're seeing that I am compassionate and caring. And you're also seeing that, you know, I I used to be maybe more brusque, uh, maybe even harsh. And so you know, all of my training in compassion, including compassion for self, has really mellowed that out some. So people often, you know, they enjoy my meditation voice. People say, oh, well, I love your meditations. And I also have this other voice. So there's both of those things. And they do coexist in my professional life and in my uh, my life in general. And the reason I think that this is so important is because it comes from me knowing me me knowing me and over the years now so when you met me i was probably i guess in, uh, in my early 50s and so by that time my confidence in this field now keep in mind you're still younger today than i was when i joined the field i became a financial planner at 44 and so i already had a lot of life experience but i had i was a complete rookie in the field and and so what you're noticing in that balance when you ask about how did I achieve the balance? Number one, I achieved the balance by becoming an expert in the field as soon as I started it. So I didn't start out and fake it till you make it. I immediately got in, got my master's degree in financial planning, immediately started taking coaching classes within a year of graduation. I immediately went to FPA residency so I could learn what it looks like, what it feels like, to do a financial plan, um, because back then the CFP board didn't even have completing a case <laughs> as part of the requirements, interestingly enough. So I needed my confidence and my competence to be aligned. And so when I think about what that means for financial planners, whether you've been in the field for a long time or you are, are new to the field, the more you can have confidence in your competence, you you have more room to bring your authentic self. So I don't have to be afraid of saying, I don't know if a client asks me a question. I'm not afraid of having to get information if someone asks me something that's not in my wheelhouse or that I don't have instant access to. And I do that by, as you mentioned, all of the certifications. Yeah, I mean, it looks great on my resume, but the point of my certifications is that I am constantly in professional development. I am constantly in personal development. And so becoming a certified mindfulness teacher, uh, all of those things were how do I grow to be the best Sandra I can be at this point in time in my life, right? And that changes, that changes. And so what matters for an advisor, uh, and this happens a lot when I'm training people to become coaches um, or even to use coaching skills in their work, Unfortunately, financial planning, because of its origin, there's still this need to have the, the client is always right perspective. And I think that, that what, what, what that causes is some financial professionals are afraid to invite accountability with their clients from the beginning. Mm. And I think what that causes on the back end is that when the client is what a professional might call non-compliant, they don't know how to fix it. And then they call me. 
<laughs> right? So can you coach this client who is outpacing their safe withdrawal rate? Mm-hmm. I've been working with them for 20 years. I, I've never held them accountable. And quite frankly, I think they would have fired me if I had tried to. And so I think those are the ways that this balance is so important. Yes, the client comes first. Yes, the client sets the agenda. And my job is to help them satisfy what they want to accomplish with their financial lives and their, their full lives by definition. And if they're coming to me, there's a gap between where they are and where they want to be. And so if I don't invite accountability and then hold up the mirror when I'm seeing something that is different from what they say they wanted, I'm harming them. I'm not serving them. I'm allowing them to to run as though, you know, we, we run as though we don't have a plan. <laughs> you know? So we have a plan and they're not executing the plan. So that's why I think this is so important because yes, kind, inclusive, and welcoming. And are you doing what you said you want? And if you're not, how do we want to deal with it? Not you're accountable to me, not not how do I hold you accountable, but if your behavior is incongruent with what you tell me your values are, how do I support you in bringing those two things together? So that boldness that you you speak of, I'm not afraid because if you don't want that from me, I need to re- refer you to someone else because I'm not the right person for you. Because when you came to me, I'm taking you at face value. You said, Sandra, I want to be blah, blah, blah. And so my job is to help you be there. So I want to, I, my experience is consistent with yours. You know, I was talking to my wife this week about my career and where I go next and all these things. And she's like, you've been doing this for a very, like, you've been on the scene, like uh, speaking at conferences, writing books and stuff for a very long time. And we were looking back at it. And in some ways, it's kind of shocking because, I mean, I was, I don't know, 30 or something when I wrote my first book about behavioral finance that did very well and, you know, wrote it with a guy who managed tens of billions of dollars. And in some ways, I had no business doing that. But in, you know, in other ways, I was like, well, you know, I have a PhD. I've researched these things out well. And I I didn't, you know, rightly or wrongly, I didn't lack confidence. And I think I fell back hard on those designations and that that education. And that was sufficient for me. Uh, recently, I don't want to identify anybody, but recently I had I had dinner with a friend of mine who had just uh, gotten his second designation. So he now has CFP and CFA designations. I mean, arguably sort of the one, two in whatever order you want to put them. Of, of our industry. And he was talking about what an imposter he felt like and how he still felt like he wasn't good enough. And from the outside looking in, I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I mean, you have you have two designations that are sort of the, the cream of our industry. For people where the designation isn't enough, because you're right, we do need to have that comfort to call our clients on that incongruence between their stated purpose and and their behavior. For people who lack that confidence, if designations aren't enough, where do they find that strength of, of will? Great question. From my perspective, you're talking about the difference between knowledge and wisdom. And there's some things that you cannot learn in a book. And everybody knows that, right? Um, We can get the theory. We can understand the research. We can do all of those things. Um, And I don't think it's a bad thing. I think, no, I know, for instance, when you mentioned you wrote your book when you were a younger person, you knew what you knew Mm -hmm. and wrote for what you knew from Mm -hmm. what you knew. I suspect if you were to write that book again now, the book would look different. It would. Yeah. yeah. And so that doesn't mean we knock what you did then. Mm-hmm. What you did then was the contribution that you made, and it was with the information and the knowledge that you had. And now, excuse me, and now you're at a different place in time. You've seen more, you know, so 
we can't expect ourselves to fast-track wisdom. Wisdom comes with experience and learning uh, your intuition and learning when to trust it and when not to trust it, right? Just because we think it doesn't make it so. And so this, this person who has both of these certifications, what I would, if I were coaching that person, what I would ask is, what part of you doesn't believe you're good enough? You know, because that's not just, um, you know, I know people use the word imposter syndrome often. Uh, I also believe that a lot of that is just a crisis of confidence. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I believe that crisis of confidence is a direct result of um, what two decades, maybe more of the idea that we fake it until we make it. Mm -hmm. And so if if that person were to say, you know what, and this is, I'll tell you, my first coach, Andrea White, I always speak people's names when they're influential in my life. Uh, Andrea White said to me in one of our early coaching sessions, I was not yet a coach. She was my coach. And I was feeling this crisis of confidence about my ability to do comprehensive financial planning. I'm horrible at investments. I'm horrible at my own investments. Never loved it, never made my heart beat fast. And I was talking to her and I said, you know, I just really don't feel confident about this. I don't feel good about, about doing this work. I love working with people around behavior, but when it comes to the, the investment stuff, I, it just doesn't make my heart beat fast. And she said, so rather than you beat yourself up for not knowing, what if you were to reframe how you serve? And she said, what if your perspective was, I will only serve clients in the areas that I feel competent, complete, and able to support their needs. Mm -hmm. And once I shifted to rather than, oh, well, I can't do this and I can't do this and I shouldn't do this because I don't feel like the expert. When I shifted it to, I'm going to bring my best self in the areas that I am an expert and that I have expertise. And that's all I'm gonna do. Anything outside of that, I'm gonna recommend that they meet with someone else. Once I did that, everything changed. I no longer was trying to force myself or contort myself into something that number one, I didn't love. And number two, I wasn't that great at. And so my confidence, as you can imagine, soared because I was doing all of those things you said earlier, welcoming, warm, assertive, and strong. And, it, you know, I was all of the best parts of me and the parts of me that were uh, more challenged by the things that I didn't enjoy. I was transparent and honest about that. So what an, what an opening conversation looked like to me is this is what I can offer you. This is how I can support you. Now, if you need someone to manage your assets or help you select stocks, I'll have to connect you with someone. We, you can continue to work with me on what we do together. And what I would do is connect you with someone who can help you with that. And either people wanted me or they didn't. And, and that was the key. I was okay if they did not choose me. And that's, I think, the hardest part. Because when we get all of these certifications, we get uncomfortable. We often get uncomfortable when someone doesn't choose us. Because when they don't choose us, then we think that that means we are not of value. And yeah. so I think that that's the main thing. And I do think that people who have CPAs and CFC, CF, CHFCs and CFPs and CFS, all that, when they have those things, I think it is easy to think that their value is in their knowledge. And I think that's a very small part of it when mm. we come to being financial professionals. That's Yeah. That's that's huge. That's that's the takeaway for for me. There is, you know, we think that the value is in our knowledge, and there's so much more that we do. You know, I can't I can't help myself here with a quick digression. You know, the research of Robert Cialdini, uh, his work on influence and persuasion. He talks about the thing that we can do. One of the most powerful things that we can do to build trust in the influence process is to actually be candid about the things that we don't do well and then follow it up with the things that we do extremely well, right? You know, if I'm you, like, look, hey, if you need help picking stocks or putting together an asset allocation, I'm not your person, 
But if you need a financial coach, you won't find a better one in the world. Like you won't find a better, more qualified person. And you know, you liken this on on an everyday level. I love this experience at a restaurant where you're about to order whatever fish or steak and they go, look, it's not that good. You know, like don't, don't do it. You know, don't order the fish. It's not great. But if you get the steak, it's fantastic. And you think about your reaction, your, your faith in the restaurant is not diminished, right? You're not like, oh, this is garbage. We should have gone somewhere else. You're really grateful to the server for pointing you in a good direction. And so I think two things, you know, the first is the thing that you said. First, we think we're only as good as our knowledge and all of the behavioral finance literature tells us otherwise and everything we'll talk about today. And then the second thing is we think being candid about our, our about our limitations is going to diminish trust in us. Actually, it builds trust. And I think when we can accept those two things, we're on the way to the to a, a, an appropriate level of competence and, and client service. Yeah, I, I love the number one, the analogy of the, the restaurant, because I think that that's true. When we understand, and we say it all the time, we say things like, oh, well, I can't be all things to all people. You know, marketing gurus in the financial planning space will say, you know, find your niche, even if it's, you know, narrowed down to one-legged basketball players, right? Find your niche. And, you know, and so, you know, we do that. We say those things, but then we abuse ourselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, we abuse ourselves when we can't be for everyone. Right. And... um I, I think one of the the best things that we can do for ourselves is take take inventory of who we are, our strengths and our weaknesses, with the kind eyes of a loving person, pet, whatever. Right? Take inventory with the kind eyes, mm. um, because then we will focus on how do we build more of our best, and it's you know. Um, I'm sure you you know you know about appreciative inquiry. It's kind of that, right? What is good here? And then you can choose to respond to what things do you want more of? What things do you want to change? What things do you want to work on? So this next question comes from some of the most important work that you've done. You've you've created two certificate programs, um, financial fitness coach and accredited personal finance coach. And having um, having played at the margins of having done the same thing, I know how difficult that is. Having never done it, but having explored its difficulty, I have a great deal of respect for that. And these are the summation of of you know all of your work experience. I want to ask you, what are the most unexpected parts of those programs, and and what is missing from most advisor education? Yeah, thank you. Great question. Um, so I think the thing that I won't say was most surprising, but the prevalence was surprising of how often financial professionals either are super, super confident in their skill and have real difficulty connecting with their clients. And I think, again, it's a function of what we just talked about, about trusting the knowledge more than the human side of what they do. Um, I think that the the rub for me, what was most expected, what people find most ex- unexpected in the program is how much self-work they will do, right? How much they uh, dance with um, their own personality, their own parts their own areas of challenge, their own strengths. Um, more than anything, what people say at the end is, you know, um, how powerful it was for them personally. Um, and then I believe that when you've done this work for yourself personally, it is much easier to share it with others. You know, it's much easier to coach a client once you have learned to coach yourself. Um, So that means navigating those areas where we are really harsh on judgment and self-judgment and where we are unkind to ourselves. If you spend a lot of time judging you, chances are you spend a lot of time judging others, Mm -hmm. right? 
And so when you begin to practice uh, approaching your own weaknesses with compassion, it is much easier to extend that compassion to the people that you're working with. And not just, oh, I understand, oh, I'm listening. I mean, deep, heartfelt, true compassion that not only recognizes what a person's experience is and treats it as sacred as it is, treats every client interaction as though it is the first time you're hearing it. When you can do that, you can be with them even when they are non-compliant. You don't have to fire a client because they're not following your plan, right? Because there's a, there's a level of vulnerability, and this is what I believe is missing from advisor education, that uh, there is a level of vulnerability that we must have in order to build true relationships with our clients. And that doesn't mean, you know, we disclose things that are inappropriate in a professional relationship. I don't mean that. I mean being willing to not know, to not have a right answer for them, to be willing to be on the journey with them as they are navigating how this plan shows up in their life, how life impacts the plan. You know, I get questions all the time. Well, what do you do when you're working with a client and someone has died? You act like a human. You act like a human. How would you act if your friend were experiencing a death of someone close? You wouldn't immediately go to, you know, all of the, the checkboxes. You would take a moment. It's not that the checkboxes are not important. We're not ignoring that, but we're not. But but I think that what happens for most professional is we go to our comfort zone. <laughs> Grief is hard. Let me check the boxes. Yeah. This is tender. This is this is bringing up my own mortality. Let me check the boxes. And so what, that's what I think is is missing. And you know we're so comfortable calling these skills soft skills, which I think is a huge disservice because it separates us from our humanness. Um, and I do believe that that is the gift of a good financial professional, that we can be with people in their best times and in their worst times and navigate those things in partnership with them so that they're not alone as they're navigating things that can be tremendously hard. You know, and, and, and you, you know, you know that very seldom when there is a deep and abiding pain, very seldom can money solve it. Mm-hmm. You know, so it doesn't matter how much or how little you have, it might be able to buy you some ease or some comfort. But the person that you're working with, that professional that you're working with, being willing to sit with you in that discomfort is by far what I believe to be the most valuable work. So when we think about what's missing from advisor education, that's one of the reasons at Golden Gate we have the you know the advanced life planning program because we really want people to know how to do that, not just to you know have a list of questions. That is not trust. That's you learning something to to use on your clients rather than learning skills to be with your clients. So when I think about you know when I think about my own life the most valuable process of of getting a PhD for me was the self-work. And like, that's maybe not a popular answer. That's an expensive, lengthy way to to do some self-work. But, you know, when you're going to be a psychologist, right, to, I mean, it's an enormously presumptuous thing to think that you're going to sit in conversation with a person at an an hour at a time and their life's going to get better as a result of, you know, of that interaction, and you have to be really self-aware. And the the process of going through that for me was so valuable, but it's also so painful. It's so time-consuming, and it's so difficult. I mean, it's worth mentioning that we are, in many respects, wired not to do this. Like you know, we're 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 wired not for. Um, we're wired for ease over excellence in in many ways, and the process of sort of excavating, you know, your your own skeletons is 
just so hard and so fraught and, and covered in personal bias and, and blind spots. How do you undertake that process with financial professionals in a way that is appropriately deep, but but also doesn't scare them off immediately? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, so I recently did a talk with uh, one of the local FPA chapters, and uh, the topic was, but I don't want to be a therapist. <laughs> the reason I chose that topic is I get that so often. I hear financial professionals say, well, look, I just want to do financial planning. I don't want to act like a therapist. I don't want to sound like a th- I don't want to do that. I want. I came into financial planning to do financial plans. And so what I believe is possible there is to begin to learn how to infuse that level of compassionate care. Because here's the thing, I don't know, well, I can't say none. I don't know many financial professionals who didn't come into the field at this stage. Now, granted, you know, we're we're 40 years in, right? 50 years in, right? Who didn't come into the field because they wanted to help. Mm-hmm. Right now, granted, are there folks out there that look? They're trying. They're out there selling a product. That's all they care about. They just want to hit that number. And go sure, sure. But that's not my universe. I don't. I don't hang with those folks. The people in my world, they're in this field because they want to help. And so, what learning some skills around whether it's therapeutic skills, coaching skills, or a combination of the two, what that allows you to do is to be grounded in yourself, in both your knowledge and in your, like you mentioned, that self-work and be available to the client, right? Not not uh, so far, what, what is the, the you, you can't see the picture if you're in the frame, right? You're still outside of the frame, but you're able to hold that space for them while they navigate whatever it is that they're navigating. So, for me, the best thing an advisor can do, uh, or any financial professional for that matter, can do is to become so self-contained. And we do that by becoming self-aware, right? And so that's what the you know my mindfulness certifications are all about, making sure that you understand, you know, uh, as again, this is a family show, that your head is where your behind is. Right. If something, you know, I, I tell people when, in my talks that your mind is your mind is where your behind is. Right. Make sure that you're not off, you know, uh, thinking about something else when you're when your seat is in another place. And so what I think that people can do is is start to navigate. OK, what happens for me when I'm approaching something that is challenging? Where do I go? And like you said, we're, uh, I love that term, taking ease over excellence. And as you know, when we're in that amygdala, amygdala place, you know, where we can be anywhere, <laughs> right? We can be anywhere. And so we have to bring that, that part of our brain that's that executive function that can say, okay, yes, you are here. Yes, this is a situation. Be with this client in that moment. Be with them. I don't tell people, oh, d- ignore but a lot of that again comes from the judgment. You know, I hear it even when people with when I'm when I'm teaching meditation classes. Oh well, it's hard for me to meditate. I can't sit still. I can't. My mind keeps drifting. All of that, all of that noise, is part of the process, right? That moment of mindfulness is the moment when your mind has drifted, and you notice it, and you come back, and it drifts again, and you notice it, and you come back. So the excellence is not in the not drifting. That's not the excellence. The excellence is when you know you have drifted and can come back. And so we can build these uh, practices for ourselves so that when we're either having our own drama or trauma, so we can navigate them, or when we're working with people that are having drama or trauma. Without, and here's the thing, and this is a crucial part of, of my courses, whether it's at Golden Gate or in my certifications, where, where is the line? Where am I going that is not my role to do? So I know that if I'm working with a client and they cannot move forward, they are stuck. I suspect 
there may be something that they need to talk to a therapist about, an actual MFT, LMFT, you know, uh, social, you know, people who are licensed to provide therapy. So I don't collapse those things, and I think that that's an important part of of you know the work that we're doing. We have to understand what what is in our lane, what are our guardrails, and so I think that's equally as important. Uh, what skills can you use without endangering the client and causing harm or opening up something that you're not equipped to handle if it you know goes sideways or if the client is is really in a in a stuck place. I want to I want to turn our attention for a moment to to rapport. You know, one of my favorite I know this is a, a central part of your courses, your certificate programs. One of my favorite uh, learnings from my from my PhD program, uh, I went to a school that emphasized what's called the outcomes literature, right? So they we did a lot of work on therapeutic outcomes. And basically, who you know, who feels better and who doesn't in when they go to therapy and why? And consistently, number one or number two is rapport. And what's wild is that years of education doesn't matter. You know, therapeutic approach barely matters. Like all these things that seem really substantive aren't all that additive. <clears throat> and then the thing that heals is really the relationship. And, you know, as someone who got a PhD, that stings a little. <laughs> you know, the, the, the thing that really heals is this relationship. And as I think about, you know, the average advisor, I, I think on average, these are well-meaning people. These are people who have above average social skills and, and, and have some, you know, natural inclination to build rapport. But I also think we don't get much training in this. And I'd be curious from, from your vantage, what do financial professionals do well? What do they misunderstand about the rapport building process? How can we do this very central thing just a little bit better? Yeah. So to your question about, you know, building the certification programs, yes, this, so, you know, of course, you know, the difference between a certificate, butts in the seat, you know, you, you, you clocked your hours and a certification where you actually have to demonstrate that you have the skills, right? So in our programs, you you have to demonstrate uh, in order to get the certification. So uh, even quite frankly, more so than the CFP, you are observed, you do a coaching session and you're observed. And so the thing that we notice is that the people who practice the most are the ones who pass that part. Mm. Um, even if they're bumpy in the beginning of the course, if they continue to practice, they build that muscle. And this is the reason. We distinguish between rapport and trust, right? Advisors will often, well, I build trust with my clients. Well, no, no, not in a first meeting you don't. <laughs> not in a first meeting you don't. Um, and I think often the focus is on, do I show you I'm able, I'm capable. They they often believe that the trust comes from the certifications behind your name. The trust comes from the, this is who I am, this is what I can offer you. Where I believe that the rapport that leads to the trust, just like, you know, the question you asked me first, do you see me? Do you see me? And when you see me, what do you see? And can I see myself when I'm talking to you? Can I trust you to hold safe space for me when I'm afraid or when I'm not confident or when I'm feeling vulnerable? Can you accept me as I am every single time we meet? Can you put your agenda aside to hear me first? Not just, well, what do you want to make sure we talk about today? right? Can you do that? Can you be with me in my moment of need? And that's not something that you teach with skills. It's something that you model when you're in my role as an educator, in my role as the holder and the trainer in the certificate program. Because when I'm training, you see me. You see my vulnerability and you see my care for you 
each and every person in my training program, when they're sitting on Zoom or in person, they have a connection with me because I allow myself to be connected with. So I'm not hiding behind my certifications. And I don't mean that to be derogatory or judgmental. You are more than your certification. You know, even with you, I'm glad you have your PhD. Your research, I think it's wonderful, but you don't hide behind it. And that wasn't my experience of you 10 years ago. When you first came to the FTA meeting, you were curious and, and rigorous and, well, what does all this mean? And, you know, you had great questions and you were open and vulnerable and in awe of this new idea, right? And so we get to do that. We get to do that and still be our expert. We don't have to put aside our expertise, you know, but, but we can sit with people wherever they are and invite them to step in with us to co-create that space together. And so, you know, when you were talking about the challenges of a certification, absolutely, it's very difficult because we have to hold both the expertise and the excellence of being with people wherever they are. And so if you and I are working together and we've, you know, we had a session before and we've come up with the plan and you know what you're supposed to do and I know what you're supposed to do, you've made these agreements and you come back, I'm not going to assume that we're taking anything at all from before. I have no idea what we're talking about when you walk in the room. I have some things that I would like to make sure we touch on, but my priority is going to be you. So Daniel, where are we going to begin today? What has your attention today? And then I'm going to shut up so you can breathe and you can think and you know that whatever it is that you say is welcome here. However you're arriving today is welcome here. So you don't have to be nervous about not doing your homework. You don't have to be any of that. And we're going to be together in this moment and in this time and figure out what's next. And I believe that that can be taught, but the people have to be willing to learn it. You've got to want to. People come to me, people come to my training program or come to me as a coach because they want excellence. They want to be great and they're willing to put aside everything that gets in the way of their greatness. Sometimes it's ego. Sometimes it's, you know, they're so in their head that they can't uh, come into, you know, I, I know we say it all the time, but come into their body, right? Of where do you feel that? You know, if you feel attention coming into the training, where do you notice it? What is it? What is it telling you? Because just like you said, all of those those parts of us, they're there for a reason. So we want to hold them with kindness, all of those parts, the self-judgment, the unkind things that we say to ourselves, all of those things, they're there for a reason. So we can learn to be kind with those things. We can learn to listen to those things and to attend to them so that we can function with our clients. Did I answer your question at all? <laughs> you you did because I'm I'm sitting here thinking, I I I hope this comes through across the the podcast wires, but certain conversations are just different. Right. And as I have this conversation with you, there's a qualitative difference between this conversation that we're having and the average conversation you have out there in life. So many of the conversations we have in life are almost paint by number, right? You go, whatever. You go to the grocery store and the clerk says, how are you? And you say, fine. How are you? Good. And, you know, you do these little dances and you go to your kid's school or you, you know, meet your neighbor. And, and it's just this, it's very surfacey, like an AI could write the script. And as I sit here in conversation with you, I'm locked in, I'm hanging on every word you're saying. And it's, but simultaneously, it feels a little dangerous. <laughs> like it feels like at any moment, you could 
ask me a question that would like make me, you know, make me go somewhere that I don't want to go or, or, and it's a feeling that, that you have when you're in therapy, right? It's a feeling that you have as a, as a client or as a therapist. And unsurprisingly, I think most advisors, most of the time are having these paint by number conversations. Because if you've got your clients back to back and you're trying to maximize financial outcomes and you're, you know, last time we talked about this, so then, you know, the next thing in the pipeline is this, it requires so much less of us than being in conversation like this. And I mean, candidly, the reason I quit being a therapist is because doing this kind of work requires so much of the person who's doing it. And for me, it was hard to come home after 40 hours a week of that and be a good husband and, and like have anything left. So I absolutely see the value in financial professionals doing the thing that you're talking about, but I also know what it requires of them. So what you know, what do you say to someone who's listening to this and is like, well, I like, I like what I like the gospel that Sandra's preaching here. I want this in my own life, but it's going to be hard. How do they, you know, how do they begin to put themselves in a personal space to be able to do this kind of work, you know, many hours a day? Yeah. So I have a talk that I do that's called Advisor as Hero. Mm. And there's a difference between the conversation that you're hearing with me now and me believing that it is my job to fix anything about you, mm -hmm. right? Even a plan, right? I can, in my best wisdom, say this is what's going to get you to a Monte Carlo simulation that says you will not be dead broke before you're dead, right? Right? So I can do that. Mm -hmm. um, and... I can have compassion without owning responsibility for your outcomes. Mm. And that is what I believe is hard for financial professionals because they they view, often view, the success of the plan with their success as a human. Mm. And as you all know, as everybody listening to this knows, the moment, we don't print plans anymore, but the moment you print it, it's obsolete because life changes. So what I'm urging financial professionals to do is embrace that it changes. Everything changes every single moment. And so you get to decide uh, when you when you said about, you know, at any moment I could ask a question that triggers something. Absolutely, I could. Absolutely. And if that happens, it gives you information. Mm -hmm. That's all it is. Emotions are information. So if you have an emotional moment, I can be quiet and I can make space for that emotion. And then I can ask, I noticed something. Is this something that we want to check in? And if it's too much, if they can't contain it, I, you know, that's what I teach. I teach people how to manage those kinds of things. One of the reasons I think therapists struggle with this, and I, this is where I'm fortunate that I'm not a therapist. I don't believe that any skill or tool or anything that I have can change or fix another person. Number one, I don't believe there's anything to fix. They're not broken. My clients are not broken. They have some things that are not aligned. They have some things that they'd like to be doing differently. They may not be doing everything that they say they want to be doing, um, but there's not a job for me to do there. My job is to be there with them. And so I do think many professionals who come to me either, you know, to help them with a the client or uh, uh, for training, that's a lot of what they experience. And what my observation is, is that by the time that they leave me, they have really good boundaries as well. You know, so yes, they have more tenderness, they have more compassion, they have more vulnerability, and they have better boundaries. Um, so that they're not up all night thinking about the client that is not uh, following the plan or the client that quit, then they don't understand why. Um, 
because we focus on every single individual person that we come into contact with is on their own journey and they have their own agency and we're choosing to be in partnership. And sometimes it blossoms and it works beautifully and other times it doesn't. And so we don't, um, we don't presume that we're going to fix anything for anyone else. And I do believe sometimes that therapists kind of uh, wear themselves down uh, without a lot of self-care. Mm-hmm. So I would wonder, even when you talk about like what that was like for you, how prevalent what, and you don't have to answer, I've just, it's just a curiosity, how prevalent was your self-care in a day and in between sessions and in a month? and in a quarter, and in a year, right? And so when I'm training people, I'm training all of that, <laughs> right? Because you're absolutely right. This is what causes people to say, well, I don't want I don't want that, I don't want that. But you know, most of the financial planners I know worry tremendously about their clients, you know? And, and so how do we navigate caring without worry, particularly about something that we cannot control. And I would contend that the more skills that we build to support the client in owning their own power to make change in their financial lives, no matter what that change is. I was talking with someone who has a client that has done a tremendous job saving for retirement, needs hip replacements, and will not spend the money that they've saved, Mm. right? And so they're 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 willing to suffer rather than spend the money that they've saved. And so we can, you know, I don't want people to think that this is always a, a lot of times people will try to pigeonhole my work into well that's for low and moderate income clients. That's not what happens with wealthy people. Wealthy people absolutely happens with wealthy people. Absolutely different concerns, but the motivation, the the intrinsic uh, value. Uh, uh, or values can can have the same kind of impact, you know. And, and so I do think that financial professionals do not have to be a therapist, don't have to act like one, don't have to sound like one to be able to be effective with rapport and trust. I do believe that any credential that doesn't do exactly what you said your PhD does invites you to do your own work can cause us to separate our knowledge from our being. You know, there's a difference between our being and our doing. So uh, my work is around helping us all to be better for ourselves, which I believe in turn makes us better for others. So much wisdom there that I will not try and improve upon. Uh, Sandra, the, the mark of a good podcast conversation to me is when I don't get to half of my questions and that uh, that standard has been met today. So you will uh, be invited back in very uh, in the very short order to have another soulful conversation with me. If people uh, want to learn more about your work, they want to explore your programs, where can they find you and your and your considerable work online? Okay, so of course, you know, Google is your friend. I'm not hard to find. You do have to put financial something behind my name. If you say my name, you have to put financial because there are a couple of Sandra Davises out there. Um, some that are politics. I'm not. That's not me. That's not me. Um, I'm at Golden Gate University. I'm the director of financial planning programs there, and we've got a new certificate coming out that I'm really excited about. It's actually a certificate that's an introduction to financial therapy, in addition to the life planning certificate and degree that I think is uh, really wonderful. And people who are very experienced planners are having uh, a good experience of that. And then my website, of course, is sagefinancialsolutions.org. And that's where you can find out about my coach training. I only offer it a couple of times a year because I'm slammed. Um, And those are the easiest places to find me. Of course, I'm also on LinkedIn. I welcome people checking in. Um, and I'm more than happy to provide written answers to the questions that we didn't get, uh, because you have you have some of the most provocative questions that I have been asked on a podcast. So uh, I really, I really did enjoy this. Thank you so much. Well, I consider that a great compliment, and even more fun for me is taking the conversation where it goes and 
we will have other opportunities to have this conversation. We won't wait 10 years again. So, you know, we can't end without saying this queen of the financial universe thing, though, right? We got to say that. because well, no, okay, look, look. <laughs> that, that one, you know, I've been called um, the godmother of financial coaching. I've been called the grandmother. But this queen of the financial universe, I'm loving that. I think I'm putting that on a t-shirt. <laughs> I, I was just trying to respect your time. Look, we got time. We, I got time today. So I got time. Let's talk. Last question I had. Okay. Sondra Davis, you are made the queen of the financial universe t-shirt forthcoming. What changes in the next 10 years, what changes would you hope to see in the next decade about how financial professionals are educated and how they serve their clients? Yeah. So I hope to see that in the same way the CFP board has incorporated psychology of money, I would love to see psychology of self. Mm. I would love to see uh, courses. You know, there are many amazing programs. In we are so fortunate here, so many amazing programs. I would love to see the programs begin to incorporate um, wisdom and intuition as part of how we train people. Learning to trust yourself um, in coaching. There's a, a, a term that's called the three trusts. And it is trust yourself, trust the client, and trust the process. And I think that what that allows us to do is to navigate change with ease and grace. We have come through very challenging times. And for those of us that have the grace to still be here at the end of what we've been through as a world, as a globe, and as a human race, there's so much ahead of us. And the more that we can tap into where we are, who we are, and who we're being, the easier it'll be for us to serve others in a way that honors their their perfection, right? In their own being and honors their own journey. And we get to have our journeys. You know, I have to say it pains me a bit to hear you say about the, the PhD in the way that you do, because I believe everything that we have ever done, everything that we've ever done has the potential to show up in everything we ever do. So I've been, you know, I dropped out of high school at 16, took my GED and joined the Navy. I uh, worked for the Navy. I sold grease for you know, manufacturing companies. I sold radio advertising. I was a development director for a nonprofit agency. I worked at a legal firm. Every single thing I have ever done shows up in everything that I do today in the best ways, mm. the best ways. And so we get to take every fragment of our being and honor it and hold it with great reverence as we open ourselves to each other as professionals and to people that we serve. And so that's my hope for how we serve, that we start by we start by serving ourselves. There's a, a group called Biz Chicks, and they always say, put yourself at the front of your line. And I love it because if we can do that for ourselves, we can model it for our children we can model it for our communities and we can model it for our clients. My children love to hit me with these little weird facts. It's one of the best parts about being a dad. That and always having chocolate milk around are both like really nice. Um, but you know, the other day, one of my, my youngest was saying, you know, dad, do you know that we've explored more of space than we have the ocean? You know, and she was, she was really excited by that. And it got me thinking, right? It's it's paradoxical. It's surprising because, you know, space is so far out there. The, the ocean's so close to home. And yet it got me thinking about probably the least explored thing on earth is the self, right? I mean, the thing, the thing that is closest to home is in many ways the thing that we just absolutely take for granted. So I, you know, I love the depth and complexity and richness you you and your work add to the to the world of financial professional training 
because it isn't just the sterile delivery of knowledge. It's the knowledge of self, the knowledge of others, the interplay of self and others. And that's what makes this work so fascinating. So uh, I, I thank you for everything you're doing. I hope lots of people listening go take you up on some of this and go explore this firsthand. And uh, again, thank you so much for, for all that you brought to the table today. Thank you. It's a delight to hang out with you again. Yes, ma'am. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliates, subsidiaries, and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.